One of the key points, I think, is that we are addicted to speed in our society. And if you get it out of your mind about being the fastest one and just have in your mind that I'm going to get there, that makes a big difference. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns Podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name's John Simmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to be your host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Wednesday, March 24th, 2021, and I have another special midweek episode for you. It's a conversation I recently had with Mark Kramer, an American living in Paris, France, and the author of the book entitled Old Man on a Green Bike, Chronicles of a Self-Serving Environmentalist. Mark shares his perspective on the transformation underway in Paris, his thoughts on how to start exploring by bike, and how he happened to become a utilitarian cyclist. But first, before we embark on that journey, please allow me a moment to recognize that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. And if you too would like to help support and promote Active Towns, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. For your convenience, there are links both in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. One final thing before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. These two actions really help with the visibility of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, let's get this conversation with Mark Kramer rolling. Mark, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today on the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Uh, thanks so much, John. So first off, I, I have to thank you so much for being uh, patient. Uh, we had a little bit of technical challenge uh, getting us started here today. And uh, this is our rescheduled reboot of our, our conversation because uh, we had a pretty big uh, pesky winter storm that knocked out my power and my heat, and my internet a couple weeks ago. So Again, thank you for your your patience. Why don't we start off by just learning a little bit about yourself and how you became passionate about bicycle advocacy? Yeah, as a child, I was passionate about bicycles, but not the adv- advocacy. My parents would send me on errands on the bicycle to the supermarket. So I was a utilitarian uh, thing. I commuted. Uh, and I also engaged in bicycle race, racing on, on the streets of the city. And uh, some of the kids in our, in our group would act as human policemen to uh, guard the cross streets so that nobody would cross our, uh, our race course. When it really hit me, since New York was, a, was not a car-centric place, when it really hit me, the problem of being in car-centric places was when I moved to Los Angeles. And the first thing that happened to me, the second day I was there, I decided to cross the street like I normally would in New York, where there was no crosswalk. It was a long walk to the, to the nearest red light. And I crossed the street and I got a traffic ticket for jaywalking. J is the word for low life, I think. When it, and I realized that uh, suddenly I was in a different culture. Still, 
I adapted because I had been propagandized into the automobile culture as a child. Even in cereal boxes, we would get uh, uh, gifts from insignias from General Motors and and uh, the other car companies. So it took me a while to come back to it. I did start bicycling here and there in, in California. But when I really, really started again was later in life in Paris, France, when I met uh, some people from a group called Velo Roussion. And uh, that means it's a play on revolution. And they're sort of like a critical mass group but they get uh, support from the police actually in Paris. And I rode with them. They stopped to pick up a car off of the sidewalk where it was illegal parked and pl plop it on the street. The policemen were, we had two police monitors watching us. They were laughing. And so they were defending pedestrians too. They weren't just defending cyclists or bicycle riders, I'd rather say. And one of the guys in the group said, hey, why don't you start uh, using your bike to go to work? Didn't even occur to me. I was so backward. And so I said, well, why not? And I tried it and I never looked back. And I've been commuting for the past 19 years. And uh, that extended into taking overnight journeys on the bicycle with my wife and with friends. Fantastic. So and how many how many years now has that been? where you have been you know, getting around utilitarian-wise on the bike there in Paris? Yeah, it's, well, for 15 straight years, all of my com commuting was done by bike. And it didn't matter the distance. I mean, sometimes be even over an hour. The, I was working in different places every day, so that, that made it interesting. And it, it was rain or shine. Uh, and then since I've uh, lowered my workload a great deal, I'm, I'm retired now. Uh, I use the bike more for, for travel, for vacations, and around the Paris region, and also in my wife's hometown of La Paz, Bolivia, uh, I also use it for exploring. One of the things that uh, I wanted to talk with you about is some of the transformations that are starting to take place there in Paris. Um, I think I may have mentioned to you that I was there in Paris in 2015 for the very first car-free uh, day. Uh, the, I saw the, your video. Okay, and you watched the video um, of that experience. And it was wonderful because I had spent several days in Paris exploring by bike. It was the tail end of a month long active towns tour in Europe. And so I had visited cities, you know, all over the Netherlands, all over uh, Denmark, all over Germany. And I even spent a week or, or several days in uh, Strasbourg, France before making it to Paris. And so Paris was my, my last city and my last trip. And it was intentional because I wanted to be there on that Sunday for that very first car-free day. I had a couple more days there in the city. So I went back and, and as you know, I filmed the Champs-Élysées right. uh, that next day when the cars were there. So let's talk a little bit about this amazing transformation that is underway. There's still a lot of work to be done, obviously, Surely. to reverse the car-centric nature, uh, you know, <laughs> not only in Paris, but in cities around the world. But let's talk a little bit about what's happening, because this is phenomenal, what's currently underway in Paris. 
Well, there was like a symbiosis between the municipal authorities who were pro-bicycle and they really, more than pro-bicycle, they wanted to get rid of the air, air pollution, clean up the place, and also between bicycle organizations. So the bicycle activist organizations, and I joined a couple, they engaged in sort of on-the-street education, education of drivers, for example. And they recognized themselves, or we recognized ourselves, as sort of the army, the silent non-military army that would prove that bicycle commuting could be the mainstay in Paris. And as we did that, they added more and more bike lanes. So it wasn't first the bike lane, then the cyclist, or first the bicycle rider, and then the bike lane. It was a, it was a symbiosis of the two things. And both mayors, Bertrand de la Noy and Anne Hidalgo, who followed him, have accelerated the bicycle lanes, made more of them protected, because in the beginning, a lot of them were just paint, and delivery trucks would be in the way. And in the beginning, sometimes it was more dangerous, because I, having cycled in New York, I was a vehicular cycle, cyclist. And when a delivery truck is blocking a bike lane, then suddenly you have to go to your left and go into traffic to go around the delivery truck. So they didn't have it right in the beginning, but little by little, it's gotten better and better. And now you actually have bicycle avenues uh, uh, going east, west, and north, south. Yeah. When we think about that process of trying to create a network of all ages and abilities facilities so that we can sort of emulate the success of the Dutch, it, it really is making riding a bike comfortable for truly all ages and abilities, not just the Marks and the Johns of the world that are, you know, are, are daredevils and, you know, used to race bikes and, and would, and, and, you know, kind of like get almost enthused or get a rush out of, you know, doing battle on these hostile streets that, sorry, that's like less than 1% of the entire population. Absolutely. If we're going to make, you know, riding a bike comfortable for everyone, then we really do need to follow the Dutch model. And, 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 and they know they're not perfect. They're continually tweaking and, and fine tuning what they're doing. But the point is, is that you're creating authentically safe and inviting environments which welcome people to give it a try and then when you start seeing you know older adults and you start seeing young children and most importantly when you start seeing women feeling comfortable riding uh in your city it just it changes everything and that's so wonderful to see that that's starting to to take place yeah well in fact it, it even gets uh, more complex in paris and i think that definitely it seems like women are an equal number of on the on bikes as, as men are now and seniors more and more seniors i call myself old man on a green bike because to show people that anybody can do it but now you have in paris it's a small city as you notice and it has a great public transportation system and so some of the activists were trying to get public transportation for free the metro for free free subway. And the bicycle group said, no, we don't want that. We don't want that because if you get 
free subways, that means that a lot of the people who are now riding are going to say, oh, it's for free. We'll get off the bike and get into the subway. And then the metro is going to be overcrowded. So the city, actually, during the coronavirus, the city and the region put bike lanes, special bike lanes, along all of the transportation lines to encourage people to not take the transportation so that those who had to take the transportation uh, would not have congested situations during coronavirus. So there was a, an alliance of pedestrians, of transit users, and of bicycle riders with the blessing of the municipality. Yeah, and that's obviously one of the uh, themes that we saw in the early stages of the pandemic and as the pandemic continued to loom large is that people were shifting away from transit. It just didn't feel safe to be locked up in, in, in a tube of any kind, whether it was a bus and or a, a metro or a train. We, we don't believe that we there was any significant transmissions, you know, that that took place. Maybe there were some, you know, maybe there weren't. But just that perception and just yep. being able to have as an option uh, the ability to get around in your city by uh, by you know by walking by biking and and that's the beauty right of the bike is that you're able to explore your city for utilitarian purposes and also for recreation and or fun but you can you can make that process. You, you feel the city at a much more intimate level than when you're in a car or even taking transit, but it's also so much more practical than walking because you can, you can cover so much more ground. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. I, and I, and I just love the fact that, that this is starting to happen uh, to Paris. Now, the reasons why this transformation, uh, you know, are happening, because they were underway prior to the pandemic, you know, taking place. So these were well underway. And the, and the mayor, um, I famously in 2015, one of the remarks that she had made in the months leading up to that very first car free day is that she said, you know, hey, we've got a problem if we can't even see the Eiffel Tower and our tourists that are coming here to Paris cannot even see the Eiffel Tower. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the environmental side of, of kind of what is pushing this along because there's a livability aspect of this that's, you know, vibrancy and, and making places more people oriented, but there's also the environmental side as well. Yeah, you know, I was never a real a real environmentalist because it it seemed like such a, a gloomy subject and such a serious subject until when I came to Paris and bicycle advocates were environmentalists and they proved that environmentalism could be fun, could be healthy. And it can be good for the air we breathe right around us. And so abstractions, uh, I, I'm not saying that global warming is an abstraction, but if you don't see it and, but you can, so it's hard to get people to say, let's fight against uh, climate change, but it's easier to say, let's get the air cleaner. And it's easier to say, let's become healthier and, and let's have fun. And not only that, but I think uh, you mentioned you mentioned the Dutch, but there's a research coming from uh, 2015 where they proved that life expectancy increases 
for people who ride their bikes every day. To the extent that you're getting one hour more of life expectancy for every hour that you commute by bicycle, which means that your net commute time is zero, <laughs> except you recover that time later in life. That is if you don't do a dumb thing like falling in the shower or uh, and not become the statistic anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I, as a public health guy, um, you know, one of the things that I like to reinforce folks with folks is that, you know, because of modern medicine, you know, these days, we may not actually be able to truly, ex, you know, extend your life by living a healthy, active lifestyle. But I can guarantee you that by living a healthy, active lifestyle, by riding more frequently, what a, what a wonderful way to get activity into your daily your daily lives than being able to incorporate active mobility. I can guarantee that over time, and this is the exercise physiologist in me, is that over time, I can pretty much guarantee you that, you know, in the latter years, you're going to have a higher quality of life. Because of modern medicine, you know, you may end up dying on the very same day, but I can guarantee you that functional life, that uh, that ability, that quality of life is much better if you have that capacity. And we actually did a, a study uh, during my undergraduate education. I was involved with a, a longitudinal study where we were looking at uh, capacities and capabilities uh into the into the latter years of masters athletes and athletes that had competed uh, in the, at the NCAA level and also in the Olympics, and so we followed them longitudinally over many 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 decades. And by the time I jumped out of that study, in terms of over looking at the data, it was it was fantastic. I mean, you were looking at individuals in their uh, in their 70s and 80s that had functional capacities of people decades younger. And so that's the key thing is that there's there's that vibrancy. So it may not actually be the the actual, you know, you you live longer necessarily, although the chances are that you will, but you're hopefully going to have a much higher quality of life in that time. Now you had mentioned a couple of things uh, earlier. One you had mentioned uh, your green bike. And so we've got your, your book here, the, the old man on a green bike and the chronicles of a self-serving environmentalist. Let's, let's dive in and, and talk about what you mean by self-serving environmentalist. Well, very often some environmentalists will tell us that we have to make a sacrifice to save the planet. And my point is that no, we're helping ourselves to be healthier, to enjoy life more by not consuming fossil fuels, by using human energy. Energy. So if this is something that we love to do, then it's not a sacrifice anymore. And so that's why I say self-serving. And I think if more people understood that, uh, it would be easier to, to build a, a real movement for the environment. I absolutely agree. I think that's such a great point. And it's it's fascinating to me too, because when I, I, I read your book and, and I'm I'm looking at all of these different chapters and, and different themes that you have in there. And I, I think you actually mentioned uh, earlier in our interview here about uh, 
you know, about exploring and about bicycle touring and things of that nature. How, how do we, you know, once we get past this, you know, resistance that many people have to, to getting on a bike because they may not feel uh, safe in, in their environment, how do we sort of encourage that concept of bicycle, bicycle exploration, bicycle tourism, bike touring for mere mortals? Um, you know, what, what advice do you have for, for making that, uh, you know, feasible and fun for people? Well, in the book, I make a point that I was the least likely person to be pontificating about, about bicycle touring. I knew nothing about it. And uh, we took some uh, risks in the beginning. Uh, my first trips were with my wife and she had a problem about getting too much sun. So I had to do the geography of uh, when the sun would be at our back or when we would hit forest at the right, uh, right point. It's, it's a new realm of geography that I've invented. And we made some mistakes in the beginning too. And so as a result, I've come up with methods where you can have great touring without being an expert. I just give you a couple of examples. Now in France, this works and in some parts of the States, States it works. But um, if you're worried about getting stuck in the middle of nowhere for some reason, plan your tour along a train ride, a line where, where you can put your bike into the train and, and go to the next town if you have a, an emergency. This is easy in Europe. It's not quite as easy in some parts of the United States. But also, there's a certain type of road that exists before they have a transcontinental uh, bicycle touring network, which is being developed right now. There are certain types of roads that are secondary roads that take a longer time to get where you're going. And this is a big lesson I learned with the first trip I went with my wife because I took the straight road thinking, oh, we'll get there earlier. And there were trucks and the trucks were blowing us off the side and the heat was terrible and there was no trees. And then I, a lady, after we nearly collapsed, a lady came out of a farmhouse, brought us some water and said, just go up there into the hills and you'll find another road there. And I had seen that road on the map, but it zigzags and it looked like a double the distance. So now what I learned was that it's better to go a longer distance and take these rural roads. And I know in the USA, they still exist. It's just a question of, um, and I think with Google Maps, you can, you can find them now. So that was the lesson of taking the longer road as opposed to the, the one that looks like it's the quickest. And there's, there's so many different lessons that, will, that anybody can adapt to. And I think also that I'd like to make a point, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about, you're, you're a health specialist, but I think this is not something that is for young people. This is something for that, that is for anybody. And I can vouch that the bicycle touring companies in Europe uh, where sometimes I've accompanied them on, on tours. I've been a speaker or they invited me to come along. Uh, the average age of these uh, tour groups is 60. And I've met one lady who was 82 that was going on the tour. So it's never too, you could, you could be sedentary. You could have been forced into being sedentary 
because uh, you lived in a neighborhood that that uh, was completely car centric. But it's never too late. I don't think it's ever too late to start bicycling. And I, I would add that you you don't start by looking at the Tour de France and trying to compete with them. I call this uh, haiku challenges or small extremes. And I think just getting around your neighborhood as a starter and doing it incrementally, people are going to be surprised at how much power they have. And what you said before is true. The quality of your life right now, even if you didn't live longer uh, lifespan, the quality of your life right now, once you, you're no longer sedentary, it's an enormous improvement. So that's, that's what I advocate. When we return after this very brief break, Mark talks about how electric assist bikes are getting more people to ride more often, how slowing down and enjoying the ride, both literally and metaphorically, can be quite rewarding, and how commuting by bike can magically turn back time. But before we get into all that, please allow me a moment for one quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please consider sharing it within your network. Word of mouth is the absolute best way to grow the audience and provide additional momentum to the culture of activity movement. Okay, that's it for this short intermission. Let's get our conversation with Mark rolling once again. The other thing that I was going to mention that I, I think is just really changing the game in terms of encouraging more people to participate is the electric assist bicycle and having that ability to have a little bit of, of an assistance. And I know a lot of the fundamentalists in cycling are like, no, that's cheating. We can't do that. And how can you, John, as an exercise physiologist, be promoting it? I'm like, look, <laughs> I mean, especially if, if, if it means the difference between somebody riding or not riding, or in, you know, in, in the case of a couple, it's, it's like, what a great way to, to be able to sort of even things up a little bit. I have a wonderful story of, uh, of one of my good friends and uh, activity ambassadors, Ryan Van Duzer, and, and he got his mom uh, an electric assist bike, and now they can, they can go out on, on rides together. So it, it completely changes the game. And I think that's one of the things that I think we're starting to see is more of those bicycle oriented tourism type of, of tours that are happening and really changing the game with a little electric assist. I've seen some of his videos. They're, they're really splendid. And, but I I would also add, I've actually directly advocated to friends of mine to get an electric bike. So I'm, I'm for it all the way. But I also think that in my case, that you can have a fear of climbing hills and you can, if you approach it incrementally, you can discover that, hey, this is not so hard after all. And there's a difference between a rural hill and a city hill. City hills with traffic, uh, they're more discouraging. And the first time that I really did a, a climb of a mountain, I was visiting friends in a rural area in the foothills of the Alps. And the first day I went out, I got up one third of the mountain, I said, I'll never do this. Next day, I, I, I went further and I got about two thirds. The third day, I made it to the top 
And I had the greatest cup of coffee I've ever had looking over a panoramic valley, a green rolling hill valley. And I said, I did it. And I've done this in La Paz, Bolivia, at the age of, in my 70s, at an altitude of 12,000 feet, going up to 13,000 feet, where I did incremental climbing. And I'm not an athlete, eh? I'm not a, a natural athlete at all. And I was able to make it six kilometers at a 5% uh, gradient. But it happened over a period of a month. It didn't happen over a period of a day. So if you're uh, willing to be patient at this, there, there's no telling how much you can extend your own physical capacity. But that said, an electric bike can keep a family together. It can, it can have a couple going together. Uh, and, it, and it also uh, makes a huge difference in, in urban, urban areas where you just can't breathe the air and say, okay, I'll, I got all this oxygen. I'm going to make it uh, higher. So go for it. If you need an electric bike, I'm for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love what you just said there too, about that challenge of stretching your, 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 your comfort level there a little bit and, and being amazed at what you can achieve, you know, taking it incrementally and, and attacking that hill, you know, a little bits at a time and, and taking, you know, a moment, be patient with yourself and, you know, and it makes it a lot easier to, and you mentioned it, it makes it a lot easier when it's not feeling like you're taking your life in your hands because of the motor vehicles and the high speeds and things of that nature. It's mm -hmm. a completely different situation if you are on that quiet, you know, country road or you're on that mountain road and you're, you're saying, you know, Hey, I'm going to make it up to that next tree at the bend there. And, and you take it and, and, and you achieve it. And, and uh, getting back to Ryan, you know, he talks a lot about that with his adventures. Part of the reason why he, pushes himself and does the adventures that he does is because of, you know, that, that sense of, of self-efficacy and self-confidence that, you know, starts to build as you're able to, to kind of push the limits just a little bit. Bringing us back uh, to uh, your, your book a little bit and also that theme that we had, you know, of making cycling more accessible to a broader audience. What other thoughts do you have, um, either thoughts that you, you talked about in the book or that you're working on with your, the various groups there in Paris about you know, making it more accessible, getting more people engaged in, in riding more often, either in Paris or universal lessons for in, anywhere? Uh, one of the key points, I think, is that we are addicted to speed in our society. And if you get it out of your mind about being the fastest one and just have in your mind that I'm going to get there, that makes a big difference. So the organization uh, in my local town of Clichy, which is right outside Paris, they, they do what they call balade, which are uh, bicycle tours, sometimes up to 30, 40 kilometers, sometimes 15 kilometers. And the average age is pretty high. And uh, they take it nice and slow, but they get there. And the, the feeling of achievement, of, of achieving, of, of arriving at the place you wanted to get to is really important. A friend of mine and myself, we did a um, 
a type of tour de France. It was a um, charity ride. But the person who asked us to do this charity ride wanted us to do a thousand kilometers. And I said, what? A thousand kilometers. And she wanted us to do it in the same days as the Tour de France riders did it. Right? Well, Alan Kennedy, my uh, my partner and myself, we did we did the, our Tour de France and we covered a thousand kilometers and the riders of the Tour de France simultaneously, they covered nearly 4,000 kilometers and they did it in half the time that we did it. So it took us longer. We went slower. And you have to be proud for arriving. And if you just think about that and don't think about speed, get that addiction to speed out of your mind. Then suddenly bicycling becomes so much more fun. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And it, it touches upon a, a couple of different themes, I think. And, and one is, you know, <laughs> Not to channel Ryan again, but he he talks about a life at 15 miles per hour and, you know, the, the richness of being able to experience things. And and I sort of mentioned that earlier is you're able to appreciate your community, your your city, the places that you might be visiting because you're feeling it at a much more intimate level because of the slower speeds. But the other thing I love about that addicted to speed kind of concept is that we're also sort of trans, transformed or we're transfixed with this concept of when we get into an automobile and we get behind the wheel, we have this you know, impression that we need to be able to drive as fast as possible and get to our, our destination as quick as possible. But you talk a little bit about it in your book too, is that well, not so fast because in certain environments, in fact, the, the the bike could be time competitive, especially when you look at all of the other externalities. And uh, why, don't, why don't you talk a little bit about that sort of formula that you guys talk about in the book? And then uh, I, I've got a couple of additional ideas that I might interject after, after you finish on that. Well, uh, the difference between uh, doing a tour by car and doing a tour by bike is that, uh, as Hemingway said, you become intimate with your surroundings. But besides that, uh, you are able to you're able to stop anywhere you want and just take in the surroundings. By being in the car, there's always this thing: oh, we got to get here at a certain time. Uh, and even if you could stop the car anytime you want, people don't do it. They don't do it because they feel like, oh, I'll be losing time. My father was an engineer. He said, when you stop the car one time, suddenly your average speed goes goes down incredibly. <laughs> so there's a, uh, people don't want to stop. But in a bicycle, it's so easy to stop. And you don't need a parking space either. And you can appreciate the surroundings. So I think that the intimacy of, of the surroundings of, of nature is a big, big advantage of the bicycle. Yeah. In your book, you also talk about the, the, that whole concept of, of net speed. Can you dive into that just a little bit? Yeah. Well, uh, I have to give credit to Thoreau, who first invented this, when he said he could walk faster to the next town than his friend could take the train. And his friend said, how is that possible? And Thoreau said, well, you have to work to, to be able to pay for the train ticket. And that was followed by Ivan Illich 
who in his book, Energy and Equity, has calculated the, uh, that your speed is slower by car because you're, unless you're making a huge salary, the amount of hours that you work to pay for that car, what is it, about 10000 a year now that it costs to sustain a car? The amount of hours that you're working to pay for your car, if you decided not to work those hours, at least if you're in the gig, gig economy, you, you could have a, uh, a choice of that. Uh, you could actually work less during your, your life. And I think that there's a gentleman who wrote about this subject. His name is John DeGraff. And uh, he's written about working less. And I think that this is also part of the uh, total picture of the bicycle culture is that you have more freedom with your time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but in any, in any case, I, I really didn't give you a great answer. You can actually calculate how many hours per week of your uh, salary is being paid, is being used to pay for the bicycle and add those, those hours onto the time it takes you to commute. And then your real commute time is more than it would have been if you commuted at 15 kilometers an hour by bike. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I was going to interject too is that uh, you know, based on your particular environment, when you're looking at the competitiveness of either riding a bike uh, for utilitarian purposes and or a, a commute, you know, which is obviously a utilitarian purpose, but uh, being able to have that flexibility of you know being able to literally smoothly get to your destination. Again, this re requires that you have uh, an appropriate network of, of facilities to be able to use, but it, it's, it's certainly much more efficient in, in, in many, many ways. And from a time efficiency perspective, especially if there's uh, challenges with, you know, finding a place to park the car and, and all of these other externalities, it, it's just so simple. And I, I chuckle about this um, because my normal grocery store run is to a Whole Foods that's, you know, a couple miles away. And, uh, you know, I pull right up to, you know, Rockstar parking right there in the front where the bike rack is and walk, you know, a couple steps into the front door. I'm not driving around in, in that crowded parking lot looking for an open space or an all. Yeah. So anyways, there's many different ways to look at that. And that's one of the things that I always look at is, hey, if, if you have a city that is working hard to create that, you know, all ages and abilities, safe and inviting network for, for everybody to ride, and you have a city and businesses that are working to facilitate that by having convenient and safe uh, bike parking facilities, all sorts of things can, can open up for folks. Uh, I, related to your, your shopping, I have another uh, question I'd like to ask you, because here, here in our town and in Paris in general, but in the region, we everything is so walkable that actually the bicycle, the bicycle, you don't even need to take the bike. Uh, so in our town of Clichy, there are 54 different types of places that we can go on foot that including supermarket or food, pharmacy, entertainment, cinema, uh, doctors, etc. So my idea to get people to 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 be active 
on their feet is to establish some system of supermarket caddies, which are like little trolleys that you have, a, have wheels on them and you can walk to the market. Uh, from our apartment, the supermarket, that one, two, there were three markets within walking distance, within easy walking distance. None of them have parking lots because everybody is going on foot. Now, if there could be some way of changing the zoning in, in American cities, whereby you could establish smaller food outlets, these are actually these supermarkets I'm telling you are, are chain stores, but they purposely put smaller um, uh, uh, stores to serve local communities. And I'm sure this uh, doesn't add too much to their distribution costs. Why can't we do that in American cities? Why can't we change the zoning? Even if you have a housing cluster and the people in the housing cluster say, well, <clears throat> we, we, don't want, we don't want the riffraff coming in here or, or uh, uh, we don't, we don't want to have uh, uh, people buying beer in the neighborhood. Well, you could put, you could have a shop just outside the housing cluster within walking distance on the main road even what they call a strode sometimes because it's not quite a street and it's not quite a road. And this would uh, automatically allow people to become active in, in, their, in their shopping. Now, why can't we do that in the United States? Well, if that's the question you're posing to me, uh, we can. We, we can actually do this. We just have to have the uh, wherewithal to, to truly make it happen. And fortunately, there are some cities that are starting to, to change their zoning requirements, starting to eliminate their parking minimums. Uh, and, and so we are starting to see you know, some openness to it. But as you well know, anytime you challenge the status quo, there's resistance. And in, in, in some cases, there's vigorous resistance to uh, changing zoning as it applies to homes and, and housing, as well as it, it, as it applies to parking, which is so critical. Now, what you were just describing there, of course, thanks for rubbing it in, <laughs> is, is that concept of what, what, what's been very, very popular to talk about is this concept of the 15-minute city where you can meet your daily needs through walking, biking, transit within an easy 15 minute, you know, radius or, or realm. And I just saw that uh, Sweden is, is now even talking about the concept of hyper, hyper local of a one minute city, meaning you should be able to, to reach your meaningful destinations like that baker and like that butcher and that, you know, supermarket, you know, literally within a one minute you know, journey from from your residence as you as you come down. And yeah, I mean, shoots, that's exactly what we should be striving for, because when we talk about all of the different goals that we have in terms of healthy places, healthy for us, as well as healthy for the planet, being able to meet those daily needs through active mobility is absolutely critical. And, and so well, even important. for even for the cycling uh, in Southern California, I've done a lot of cycling. I have family there, and I and I lived there for ten years. And the, the problem you get this sun on a hot day, and you got no shade. But one reason you have no shade is because there are so many parking lots outside in front of the stores. 
Now they could have put them behind the stores if they didn't want to not have parking lots in places that are more, that are better for cycling. You don't have, you're not hit by the heavy sun more than two or three hours a day because you get the shade of the buildings on either side of the street. Streets have to be narrower uh, too. So we never have to worry about having the sun. I, I, that's important to me because I know people, including myself, but my wife in particular, who's uh, super sensitive to the sun. Uh, but it also, it, it makes you um, uncomfortable to, to not have a, a refreshing place to cycle. And I would like to just, if I could put in a good word for uh, Valencia, California, which is a, a typical American suburb, but they have what they call paseos, which go through the different neighborhoods and there have trees covering them. And so a person can actually bike or cycle. You can, they're, they're multi-purpose uh, without having to deal with traffic and without having to deal with the sun. And that's in Southern California in an auto, automobile centric place. So I'm sure there are other models in America that, it, that it's being done well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I love that you invoked two things there. Uh, you had mentioned the word strode and you uh, had uh, mentioned uh, trees and tree canopies. And I'm going to bring those two together uh, through uh, my good friend, Chuck Marone. Uh, he helped coin the term, the, the, the strode, the street road uh, hybrid, which is, as he likes to call it, the futon of transportation. It's not very comfortable for anybody. But the tree canopy, we, we had a story. He and I were presenting at a conference down in San Antonio. And the day after the, the, the co uh, conference, we were going to be heading up to, uh, to Austin. And we had a little bit of time and, and I wanted to show him this particular street, this particular area, because where we were presenting at the, at the conference, as well as the next day when we were having some meeting with some city officials, it was just surrounded by strodes, surrounded by pavement, surrounded by parking lots. And it was this heat island. And he's from Brainerd, Minnesota, up in uh central Minnesota, northern uh, central Minnesota, and he was just melting it. And, and, and he was a little bit agitated and a little bit irritated uh, anyways, because we had just come out of that meeting with the city. And, and uh, I said, Chuck, I know we need to hit the road, but I need to show you something. And so we, I said, it's not very far. It's just a couple blocks over, you know, parallel to this main drag that we were on. And we got over there and his mood just immediately changed. We stepped out of the vehicle and into this tree canopy and uh, immediately he was just like, John, this is wonderful. This is beautiful. The temperature, I, who knows what the temperature differentiation was, uh, maybe five, maybe 10 degrees, but, but it felt so much better. And he actually pulled out his phone and he shot a video. And so out on the Strong Towns website somewhere is an old historic uh, a video that he, he shot from, you know, those many, many moons ago. I think it was in 2014 that we shot that. Uh, and it talks all about the power of street trees and the power of tree canopies and how important that, you know, can make a, an environment that would otherwise just be inhospitable and it transforms it. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Well, please tell him that I'm a fan of his. And I quoted him once in the book, too. So uh. that that's fantastic. He'll be delighted to hear that. So as we sort of wrap up here today, I always like to 
end with a, a little bit of advice for, for those people who might be listening in and saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm inspired. I want to make my community a more comfortable place, a, you know, a, a more livable place. What advice would you have for them if they're inspired to make a difference in their community, in their neighborhood? Yeah, I may not be the best model for this advice because I actually moved to a place that was bicycle friendly. Uh, but really now I, I, I would advise to stay and fight for your community. And I'm, uh, my wife and I are planning to moving back to, to uh, California uh, to, to fight the good fight knowing that it's not going to be as walkable or as uh, as uh, friendly to bicycles because there is something inspiring that that when you when you don't have everything in your favor and it becomes a greater purpose in life and besides that the advice would be as i said before about the incrementalism if a person is stuck in a sedentary life it is so hard to break out of that and it's so hard to, to have the confidence to, to do so. And I think that if you look at things incrementally, then just bicycling around the block the first time, that, and, and just little by little extending it. And I, and I know people who, who have done that, who started at a later age too. So I'm telling you, don't let age uh, be a question. And also, of course, I'm not a doctor. You should talk to your physician if you're going to do something like this. But I can vouch with my medical records, because here in France, we have to take these. Uh, after you're a certain age, you take these blood tests and they check all your, your vitals. And I have them after doing bicycle trips. And, and, uh, and I can prove to you that the cycling has made a huge difference in my health. And uh, so this is what I would recommend. And I know people who, who were sedentary, who are no longer sedentary anymore. And I think that's more than my own achievement <laughs> is to think that I've actually managed to help other people to, to fight this good fight and to defend their own public health, their own personal health, and at the same time, the environment. Well, I love it that, you know, every every journey starts with that very first step and or pedal stroke. So great advice, you know, get out there, be bold, take that first step and and get out there. So uh, do we have a short list of cities that uh, are under consideration in California for that move? Well, um, it, it may that may be determined by um, by where the family is. But in in uh, north of north of L.A., where our uh, our daughter lives and in the south in Orange County where another daughter is those are two possibilities uh, around Irvine which is completely car centric completely car centric they have bicycle paths painted on the side of every street and the only people you see there are people that are what do they call them mammals uh, 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 you don't see anybody going to work there I, uh, that looks like a good fight I could take up or or an in, in Valencia, California, where they're, 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 they're doing, doing a lot to try to make cycling uh, better, they have a, a, a trails uh, director there. Uh, those are the two places that, um, that we were considering, but uh, we'll go anywhere, I think, that just to, uh, 
we did check another place that was bicycle friendly, but we discovered that it was not walkable unless you lived in a gentrified community. And so uh, that's the other problem that uh, it's, it's like a can of worms here. So, but walkable places very often become gentrified because there's so few of them that people gravitate to them and the, and the, then the price of real estate goes up and you can't afford to be there. So um, I, I think we're going to look for a place that's not gentrified and, and try to keep it, keep it that way. Well, I wish you the best of luck uh, there. I'm a fourth generation uh, Los Angelino. And so my family dates uh, back to the Los Angeles area in the, the 1880s, 1890s. And, and uh, so I have a love hate relationship with Los Angeles and, and the entire you know, Southern California area there. I miss it dearly, but at the same time, whenever I'm there, it drives me crazy now. <laughs> so, but uh, that's great. Well, hey, uh, we Los need- Angeles, I, I just want to say one thing about LA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to not uh, bash it too much. Uh, Los Angeles has some great mountain hiking. And, and if you like uh, running up stairways, climbing stairways, Los Angeles is the second best city in the United States for, for stair, uh, for, uh, public staircases, uh, including the one that Laurel and Hardy tried to push up the, uh, uh, to deliver the piano on. So there are, there are some great geographic uh, things about LA and, and it's, it is a place to, to stay and fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, a, a, a previous guest on the Active Towns uh, podcast, Alyssa Walker is a journalist uh, there in the Los Angeles area. And she actually uh, had, I, I don't think it was an entire book, I think it was an article or a series of articles about uh, walking in LA and all the cool places that uh, are there. And she, right. she actually talked a lot about uh, the various stairways and some beautiful, beautiful. Uh, I'm writing it down there. right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Alyssa Walker. She's currently a journalist for Curbed. Um, I can't remember who. Uh, she was writing for when she did that. But if you go back and listen to uh, to that episode, I think she talks a little bit about that. I know I know we do talk uh, a little bit about I that whole concept of, you know, nobody ever walks in LA, right? Well, Alyssa does. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, hey, again, Mark, thank you so very much for uh, joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you so much, John. Uh, it's an honor that you invited me. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 66 of the Active Towns podcast. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark. He is truly proof that we can continue writing into our 70s and beyond. For more pearls of his wisdom, please consider picking up your own copy of his book, Old Man on a Green Bike. There's a link in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode, along with some photos Mark has passed along. Now, as many of you may know, Active Towns is a nonprofit incorporated in Boulder, Colorado, and the vast majority of my board of directors live within a very short distance from where the senseless violence occurred earlier this week. Personally, I used to shop at that particular King Supers grocery store every few days as I lived within walking distance during the mid-1990s. All that to say, although I don't know anyone involved, this still truly hits home, and I just feel so saddened for the families and loved ones impacted by this horrific act. These events, which continue to happen over and over again, are completely unacceptable. As an advanced, civilized nation, we can and must do better. 
now. Okay, that's all for this special midweek episode. I'll be back on Friday. This is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.